You're listening to The Martial Brain, the podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. Toxic Sparring Culture and Other Martial Academy Diseases Or, I already know you're better than me. You don't have to be a dick about it. Today I want to talk to you about an area of martial arts training that generates a broad spectrum of emotional responses. Sparring Now in my opinion, to make your martial arts training complete, you must do some kind of contested training, or sparring. So, operating with that as a given assumption, is all sparring the same? Of course not. Remember the basis, the very reason for the existence of this podcast series? That basis is my take on the variety of ways that the amazing, infuriating, quirky human brain in all its iterations affects the practice and teaching of the martial arts. With such a rich tableau of possible human behavior, it would be impossible for all sparring to be the same. As a matter of fact, sparring is a strong candidate for the area of martial arts training in which we, chimps in shoes, demonstrate the heights and depths of human behavior to their fullest extent. When it's done well, sparring can be incredibly productive, relatively safe, really fun, and beautiful to behold. When it's done badly, it's at the very least a poor use of training time, is probably torturously frightening and dangerous as hell, and is really painful to watch. There are many factors that can affect the quality of sparring, among them the level of technical instruction. But also, and my topic today, another major factor is the culture of the academy and how that culture is reflected in the sparring there. Whatever your particular flavor of the martial arts calls sparring, whether it be sparring, freestyle, bouting, rondori, rolling, timing, or whatever else, getting your students, and especially the more experienced students, to understand how to go about it in a productive way And by that, I don't only mean productive for that individual student, but for the academy as a whole, is of the utmost importance. One of my instructors has told me many times that each time he schedules a regular block of time for his students to engage in sparring, he sees a disturbing phenomenon take place. He relates that if 20 people show up the first night, the next time only 10 show up, and the next time 5 the time after that, two, and finally, only one shows up, which obviously is effectively the end of the regular sparring session. I assert that if a productive culture of sparring is carefully indoctrinated into the students, this should not happen. If sparring is found to be a frightening, painful, humiliating, or unnecessarily dangerous experience, then only the people who are doing well in the sparring matches are going to have fun 
and will want to come back. The number one ingredient in the recipe of toxic sparring culture is to spar as if you are fighting. Such an attitude turns sparring into a zero-sum game. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means, a zero-sum game is a game in which there's a direct mathematical relationship between how much you win and how much the other person loses. Poker is a great example. For me to win a game of poker, I must take all of your money, and you must lose all of it. The popular phrase, win-win, refers to an interaction that is not a zero-sum game, one in which it is possible, and even desirable, for more than one person to come out ahead. So if you treat sparring like a zero-sum game, that means in order for you to succeed, your partner must lose. But a smart academy owner wants all of his students to advance in their training as fast as possible. Killing the spirit of half your students in each sparring session is no way to do this. Zero-sum games are for losers. Did you see what I did there? There's yet another related faulty mindset that is a common cause of toxic sparring culture. That is approaching sparring only with the thought of how well you yourself are doing, with no thought at all given to how well your training partner is doing. Simply put, you may not be making the mistake of thinking that sparring is a fight, but you are making the mistake of thinking that the martial arts is an individual pursuit and not a group effort. It's absolutely vital that each student approach sparring with concern not only for their own individual development, but also for the growth of their fellow students, who in fact make up the pool from which the sparring partners are drawn. I don't say this for any ethical reason, although there is validity there as well. No, I say it because it is literally in your best interest to be deeply concerned with the improvement of your training partners. You can't spar without a sparring partner. The better your sparring partner is, the more options you have. As the one-time leader of the legendary Filipino Martial Arts Training Association called the Dog Brothers, Eric Knaus, once said, Training partners are like the waves upon which a surfer rides. The bigger the waves, the better the ride. You may wish to tweak the way you spar in a given session to focus on a specific area of development. The more skilled your partner, the more possible this becomes. If you've never been the only, or one of the few, skilled practitioners in a group made up mostly of beginners, let me tell you that developing your skills quickly is best accomplished by concentrating on developing the skills of those rookies. But even a skilled partner is insufficient if they are your only one, or one of a small few. To get the most out of training, you need to spar with a large and varied group of sparring partners. You may already understand the concept that martial arts training is a group effort, but you may not fully grasp just what it takes to attract and keep a large group. You want to be part of a gene pool, if you will, that sports tall partners, short ones, partners that are fast, or with extreme ranges of motion. The more variation, the better. So do you see what that also means? 
The need for a large and varied group of training partners means that it is also in your best interest to do what you can to draw more students to your academy. Don't just leave this up to your instructor. Help them out by using your own connections to talk up the academy. Anything that brings in more training partners is a plus for you. Okay, so let's assume it's given that you want to spar in a way that helps to foster not only your own development, but that of your fellow students and even your academy. So just how exactly do you do that? Well, let's begin with what you don't do. If you are significantly less skilled than your partner, it's not a good idea to try to prove to them that you're a tough guy by attacking like a madman. If your partner's a lot better than you, he or she may have no wish to hurt you. But if you go at them as if you're trying to prove something, they just might reflexively hurt you before they realize what's happening. I know that when you're on the short end of the stick in an unevenly matched round of sparring, it can sometimes be difficult to know what to do. But guess what? It's perfectly fine to ask. A skilled partner is a resource to use, not an enemy or a cool kid that you need to impress. It's not in your interest to try to prove anything to them. It's also important to remember that despite the fact that they are better than you, they are not infallible or indestructible. As a matter of fact, the most dangerous type of sparring partner to the health of the veteran student is an aggressive but clueless beginner. If you are the less experienced partner, watch out for and take care of the more experienced partner the same way you'd like them to do for you. There is also a list of don'ts for the more highly skilled sparring partner. Now it should be obvious that you don't want to injure your fellow students. Almost equally important is to not humiliate them. If you spar in such a way that your partner feels that no matter what they do, you always and immediately show them that their efforts are futile. You are doing nothing to help grow their game or yours. On the other extreme, it's unnecessary and equally insulting to take it so easy that you're sparring the way you would with a three-year-old. There is a level of intensity that is near perfect for every sparring partner, one in which they feel challenged but can succeed to the degree that the sparring is fun. It might be useful to think of yourself as if you are a video game that your partner is playing. You are the computerized robot that shapes their experience. Try to do it in such a way that allows them to play up to their level. Don't punish every little mistake that you see them make. You might want to give them a particular task to try, like defending against your low kicking attacks or stopping you from passing their guard. This kind of isolation sparring can be less overwhelming for the beginner and early intermediate student. Above all, pay attention to how they seem to be enjoying the experience. Watch for nonverbal cues and ask them now and then how they're doing. If they feel that you're treating them with the care and respect that a training partner deserves. But at the same time, don't labor under the misconception that simply asking them these questions absolves you of any further responsibility. Remember stubborn human pride. Just because your training partner insists that you're treating him just fine doesn't mean that he really thinks that. 
He may not wish to admit that he's feeling intimidated, or afraid, or humiliated. Asking him how he's doing is only one source of information. You have to keep your antenna up all the time to help make sure that you're going about this the right way. Like so many things worth doing, you must constantly refine your skills at being an enjoyable sparring partner for others. Above all else, avoid hierarchical thinking. It's dangerous, unnecessary, and not helpful to feel that you need to show them your true level. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think and check out old episodes of the Martial Brain podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for the Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the Martial Brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com. <laughs>